0: Sam, it's been a while. Yeah, I mean, I think several apologies are in order. We kind of ghosted as a podcast.
1: I mean, I think explanations are
0: probably first in order. Yes, we were both moving around July 1st. It is National Moving Day in Quebec July 1st, which is incidentally the same day as Canada Day. Quebec has decided to end all leases on one day so all apartments open up on that day and consequently everyone moves on that day. Yeah so me and Sam both
1: moved to new apartments on that same day. How's the new place working out Sam?
0: It's really really fantastic. Tons of light, tons of crosswind. I'm on the top floor. It's a wonderful situation.
1: Yeah, so the process of the move sort of took us out of the game for a bit.
0: Wait, I didn't get to ask you how your apartment is.
1: Well, the apartment that I moved into has a guy upstairs who's a chain smoker, and all the smoke comes through into my room from an unfinished ceiling in the closet. So my move has not been good. It's been uh, interacting with all my uh, autoimmune problems,
0: so that's been horrible. Uh, Beyond the smoke that has permeated your chambers how is the rest of the apartment i
1: mean the apartment's great if there wasn't someone upstairs slowly poisoning us it would be terrific (laughs) um so we're gonna have to try to figure that out we have a bunch of plans in order what do you have on deck Uh, we're gonna try to build like a reinforced ceiling over the parts that it's leaking through okay and see what happens and if that doesn't work then maybe we'll have to move again i don't know oh no yeah hopefully not Fingers crossed. So this is one of many reasons that we haven't been recording the Trave podcast on our usual schedule.
0: Yeah, I guess. But it is the principal reason for both of us. Anyways, the point of the story is we should have written something on Twitter or Facebook, but we didn't. Um, So here is the first episode and we're back on our regular schedule.
1: Yeah, we missed a lot of things and I don't think we're going to talk about most of them today.
0: (laughs) But one thing I would like to address before we move into regular scheduled programming is the photo The beachside photo of one Benjamin Netanyahu and President Modi of India. Did you see that photo? No, I did not. Please Google. Okay,
1: hold on a second. Hey, here's a CNN.com article. Netanyahu and Modi hit the beach to do business. (laughs) Oh, they're just standing in the water with their clothes on?
0: It's wild. I mean... Yeah, again, there's there's tons of political ramifications of these two leaders meeting and, and what the connection between Israel and India will be geopolitically. I just wanted to focus on the fact that they both chose to stroll into the beach fully clad. And by beach, I mean ocean. Seems like a very weird decision. Yeah, it's pretty weird. I mean,
1: since we're talking about the region, we should mention for those who do not read the news that Gaza is currently mostly without power. Uh, Things are getting incredibly grim. We're hoping to have more discussions about this uh, in a focused way on the show, but diving back in, I, th- I feel like there's been a lot of very horrible developments, uh, not just in the region, but in the world, since we uh, recorded the last trade
0: podcast. What What other horrible developments?
1: Uh, so there's all these anti-Roma pogroms in Europe. Things are getting closer to removing healthcare for most people in the United States.
0: Um, okay, well, there are people can just go to the internet and look for bad things that are happening.com.
1: Yeah, this is not the Bad Things Podcast. Thankfully, we don't do a news podcast, so we don't have to sit here and just tell you horrible things that have happened. You can uh, use the internet for that. Although, I guess technically, we are also on the internet. Not technically, yes. Okay, but anyway, uh, today on the show, we spoke with Rebecca Pierce. Rebecca Pierce is someone that we have been trying to schedule a conversation with for a very long time on the Trave Podcast, and we were delighted to finally have an interview happen.
0: Rebecca is a filmmaker and activist. Are there any other descriptors you'd like to use? Uh, I mean,
1: Rebecca's the editor-in-chief of the Unruly blog, which is a project of the Jews of color, Sephardi Mizrahi caucus in solidarity with Palestine that organizes in partnership with Jewish Voice for Peace.
0: And we get into a bunch of the work that she's up to on this interview. But if you'd like to know more, you can check the show notes and all the links will be there.
1: We specifically had her on to talk about an article that she co-wrote intervening in a lot of pretty horrible discussions that were going on in the jewish media that sort of came out of a different discussion about gal gadot who was starring as wonder woman there were calls for a boycott of the film because of her idf service and, and her overt zionism and support for the last assault on gaza and there was unsurprising pushback against the call and it mobilized a lot of rhetoric that we're very familiar with unfortunately about white jews not being white gal gadot is a person of color and thankfully, Rebecca co wrote this article uh, with Mark Singh Putterman, really bringing some much needed clarity to that conversation and, and shutting down some of its worst elements.
0: There's not much else to add to that one. Enjoy the interview. This is short 31.1. I
1: don't think that's how our numbering system works.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's in between episodes 31 and 32. Well, now you know. Enjoy the talk. all <laughs>
2: I'm Rebecca Pierce. I'm a black and Jewish filmmaker and journalist based in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm also a core member of the Jews of Color and Sephardi Mizrahi Caucus that's organized in partnership with Jewish Voice for Peace.
1: Uh, Well, Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on the show. and we've wanted to have you on for a long time, and it's uh, really great to have you on.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Uh, We actually have a lot that we want to talk about, but the thing that I think makes sense to start with is a recent article that you wrote in the foreword uh, entitled, What Jews of Color Hear When You Say Gal Gadot Isn't White?, there's been a lot of Jewish media discussion of Gal Gadot since the Wonder Woman movie came out, and I was wondering if you can talk a bit about what led you to write this article.
2: Yeah, so um, I wrote that article with Mark Singh Paderman. We had both been sort of witnessing this whole conversation unfold around Gal Gadot and her supposed status as a person of color, and that kind of started when a writer for comicbook.com wrote about how people complaining that Wonder Woman was a film that didn't have a lot of racial diversity, were wrong to do so because Gal Gadot is Israeli and is thus not a white person. And pretty soon we started seeing different think pieces promoted around this topic, most of which were written by white Jewish people. Um, and I think Mark and I were both pretty frustrated at the fact that this conversation that has a lot to do with Jewish people of color were impacted by the, the history of whiteness and like its continued existence in the Jewish community, that our voices are totally ignored in this. And it leads to our continued erasure as Jewish people of color. So we felt like we really had to say something.
0: I mean, people should go read the article. It was published on June 16th. But for people who haven't, would you mind kind of talking a little bit about the issues that you and Mark raised?
2: So Mark and I took on some of the other writing about this. um, And they kind of relied on genetic and eugenic arguments as to why Jewish people aren't white. So saying that Jewish people have non-white DNA which is a really bad way to talk about race. Israel has its own racial hierarchy that Gal Gadot is a part of, and as an Ashkenazi person, compared to a Mizrahi Jewish person or an Ethiopian Jewish person, she is a white person. She's not a Jewish person of color, and that means something that matters. And to portray her as a Jewish person of color or a person of color more broadly is to cover up this really deep history of racism in Israel um, between Jewish people. This conceptualization of the Jewish community as non-white actually leaves very little room for Jewish people of color, because what are we if, you know, a white Ashkenazi Jewish person isn't actually white?
1: I mean, another element of this uh, media discussion that was going on seemed to resemble to me something that happens quite a bit, where when there are issues raised about Zionism or about white Jews and whiteness... Things get derailed very quickly Mm -hmm. in different directions. And one of the manifestations this often takes is white Jews running away from the realities of of complicity in these things. And I don't think it's coincidental this discussion was emerging from critiques of Gal Gadot, her relationship to Mm -hmm. the Israeli defense forces and her support for the last assault on Gaza. I'm wondering if you if you saw that same parallel in the way that this played out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of left the discussion of Gal Gadot's military history and her, you know, relationship with Zionism to the Palestinian and other folks of color who've already talked a lot about that. Um, But I definitely do see a connection, and I think that whether you're talking about U.S. white supremacy and settler colonialism or Israel, there's a really strong attempt to avoid these conversations in the Jewish community because they challenge this kind of perception of ourselves as the sort of perfect victims and people who are morally on the side of justice in every case. That's impossible for any person to always be morally on the side of justice. You're going to be wrong and mess up sometimes. And if you're talking about a community that's had very violent anti Semitism and, you know, genocidal actions taken against us, there are gonna be some people who react to that by clinging on to the structures of power that are harming other people. If you're talking about the United States, something I was always curious about as a black Jewish kid growing up was what were Jewish people doing during slavery? And then when I started to research this, you know, there weren't a ton of Jewish people in the United States in the antebellum era, but The Forward has a great article about the Jewish community in Charleston, South Carolina, which was the main hub of Jewish life in the United States at that time, where Jewish people owned slaves at the same rate as their Christian neighbors. You know, Judah P. Benjamin, who was a product of that community, ended up being the Confederate Secretary of State. And so, like, for me, this fact that there were Jewish people who got to be white When my black ancestors in the United States were slaves, you know, a lot of white Ashkenazi, especially also white Sephardi Jewish folks, want to ignore this history. They'll start Jewish history, say, in 1900 and ignore it. And I think that part of it is that dealing with this reality breaks down a kind of self-image that people want to have of ultimate morality when no one has that. And Jewish folks certainly aren't exempt. And it's part of the diversity of our people, that you have black folks who are in the Jewish community who are descended from slaves, and you have white folks who are descended from slave owners. And in order to ignore or cover up the history that some of us are connected to slave owners, you also have to ignore the fact that some of us are the descendants of slaves. And it ends up becoming this sort of homogenized view of what it is to be a Jew that doesn't really include any of our history.
0: So... We've spent a lot of time on the show thinking about anti-Semitism and thinking about how anti-Semitism is used. When you're talking about the need to kind of complicate the Jewish experience and Jewish history and Jewish identity, one thing that it kind of flagged in my head is this ongoing conversation about anti-Semitism and how there's people cling to a singular narrative of anti-Semitism when obviously Mm -hmm. it it means so many different things to different people at different times in, in different places. And I guess I'm just wondering how you feel the discussion on anti-semitism intersects with what you just talked about.
2: Yeah, there's another problem, which is that when people talk about Jews, what they really mean is white Ashkenazi Jews in the United States. I hear this over and over again where people will say Jews X, Jews that, and they're really talking about a very particular group of Jewish people. And because of that, when anti-semitism is discussed, there's also a very particular type of anti-semitism that we think of. And when I look at the things in my life that I felt were anti-Semitic, it often looks really different because I'm racialized in another way, and so the anti-Semitism comes up in another way. Whether that's the anti-Semitism I receive being, you know, a black Jewish person, maybe from my own community, maybe from other marginalized communities, that's one thing. There's also, I think, a sort of internalized anti-Semitism that gets put on to me from other Jewish folks who are defining what it means to be Jewish in really narrow ways that, um, have to do with trying to conform to certain Jewish identities and exclude other parts of the Jewish identity. Something that I'm careful to say when I'm talking about issues of race and the Jewish community is that the existence of racism between Jews or coming from the Jewish community and discussing that racism, doesn't erase, ignore, or discredit the actual history of anti-Semitism and the ongoing anti-Semitism that Jewish people face. Jewish people certainly were not white in Nazi-occupied Europe. They certainly weren't white in the centuries before that when they were being systematically excluded. But at the same time, anti-Semitism and white supremacy are both things that have changed over time and people's statuses have changed over time, right? But I think that people have a hard time changing their perceptions of who they are with that history. I hear a lot of folks talking about things that happened to their grandparents as they're happening to themselves when they're describing their positionality as a Jewish person and with anti-Semitism. And I think that um, intersectionality is a really important way of looking at these things because you can be empowered and privileged in one way and disempowered and marginalized in another. And I think you can both experience many of the privileges of what it is to be white in America right now and also be excluded along the lines of your religion in certain ways, which is a different axis of oppression. You can in many ways be an out Jewish person in the society and still receive the privileges of white supremacy. And I saw this a lot personally growing up, when um, I would be singled out as the dark-skinned person in my Jewish family and, you know, not be treated the same way, be assumed to be a member of the HELP or the staff, you know, be treated with suspicion in a way my Jewish relatives weren't. That doesn't mean that, you know, my grandfather or my father never ever experienced anti-Semitism. There was anti-Semitic redlining in Chicago when my dad was growing up and all sorts of phenomena that targeted them for being Jewish. But When you look at how the black part of my family is able to live versus the um, Jewish part of my family, there's a systematic difference in how people are treated. And I think if you're trying to talk about anti-Semitism as something that somehow nullifies these privileges, that's a really big problem, and it ends up, again, flattening Jewish identity.
1: I mean, in terms of what you are saying about the the flattening of Jewish identity, one rare place on the Jewish internet, which is a small place to begin with, that, <laughs> you know, uh, this is being actively resisted and, and Jews of color are given a platform to talk about their insight and their experiences is the Unruly blog, of which you are, of course, the editor. Yes. Uh, and could you just maybe talk about the origins of that blog and how it got started?
2: Yeah. So Unruly is the sort of the official blog of the Jews of color and Sephardi Mizrahi caucus that was founded in partnership with Jewish Voice for Peace at the 2015 JVP National Membership Meeting in Baltimore. Started out with a core of 16 people, and we really wanted to focus on bringing an anti-racist approach to Palestine solidarity and confronting Zionism, fascism, and Israeli nationalism, both in Israel and in our Jewish communities. we were trying to kind of confront the fact that the only time that you do really hear about Jewish people of color is in this very sort of brownwashing context of oh, look at diverse Israel, look how they have an Ethiopian Miss Israel and um, a Bedouin judge and a Mizrahi fashion designer. So we were really trying to confront all of these issues in the way that our community was being used to brownwash Israeli apartheid and also um, the harm that that does to Palestinians and the harm that that does to us. We're also just trying to build a, a community for ourselves when we're often excluded from the Jewish community, both as Jewish people of color and Sephardi Mizrahi Jews. And as people who are critical of Israel, critical of Zionism, critical of the occupation. So the blog, we're really trying to build a platform with the Unruly blog for both Jews of color and Palestinians. Our first commissioned piece was a Palestinian Jewish woman writing about Standing Rock. And since then we've had a lot of different pieces about things like you know Trump's Muslim travel ban, uh, we had a great piece by Mark Singh Putterman about the history and changing status of Jewish people in relationship to whiteness and how Ashkenazi Jews in particular can benefit from white privilege and, and be white in this country. And we've had like a pretty diverse array of different pieces and we're trying to break out more into like, you know, developing a podcast, just trying to increase the conversations and the representation of diversity in the Jewish community both around discussions of Israel and Palestine and more broadly in terms of racial justice issues and Jewish issues in
1: the U.S. I have to say it's really heartening to hear about the focus on collaboration with Palestinian authors as well. Like, I didn't know that was an element of the work that, that was being centered. And, and it just made me, th- like, it, me and Sam outside of the podcast uh, have been a part of a series of discussions with a, a loose network of anti-Zionist leftist Jews in Montreal. And we've been talking a lot about trying to learn from our mistakes and things that we should be prioritizing more. And something that we've really been emphasizing in those discussions is the way that Jewish left organizing, even when it's anti-Zionist, can often think that it's okay to just operate in this Jewish vacuum and, and to make strategy just as Jews and not actually be forging these long-term relationships of solidarity with Palestinians. Is that, is that a dynamic that you've encountered in Jewish organizing where, where you're at?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that two competing problems. One is the need for anti Zionist and Jews of color spaces within the Jewish community. That's super necessary, but I think that it's also really important, especially considering that some of the folks in the caucus are Palestinian Jewish folks, but beyond that, just to be working directly with Palestinians because. You're not going to build a joint struggle, you're not going to build a joint future together without including other folks. Like, it's important for us to have our own spaces and work on our internal issues, but we also have to take that step of making space for Palestinians in the Jews of Color Caucus on our blog, because we are specifically, like, pro-Palestinian space. And we actually have a lot of work to do getting better on that. I'm hoping to, like, have a whole series about Jewish accountability to Palestinians written by Palestinians on the blog. And I think I also want to push some of the folks in our community to look at the Palestinian folks who are already there, listen to them, and think critically about what are our relationships to Palestinians. You know, I think a lot of Jewish folks in the caucus, we see ourselves as being victimized by Zionism in a certain way because of the, the emphasis on European Jewish culture and both the creation of the State of Israel. And really like the conceptualization of what it is to be Israeli. But we also have a really complicated relationship with Palestinians where we do benefit from their oppression. And we need to be responsible for that and make that extra effort to share some of our resources and our space with Palestinians who might not have access to the same thing.
0: On the subject of Palestine, you recently released a film about the Israeli Black Panther, Reuven Abregel. I guess I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that project came together and why you chose to focus, I guess, on on this particular person and his lived experiences.
2: Yeah. So the project started when JVP's social media coordinator approached me about doing the film. She wanted something about Jews of color and was especially interested in Mizrahi issues because, you know, Mizrahi Jews in Israel are one of the largest groups of Jews of color anywhere. I had already met Rouven a few years prior to that. I traveled to Israel and Palestine on an interfaith peacebuilders delegation, the African Heritage Delegation in 2014, where we'd met Rouven, and he'd really made a huge impression on me. This was just before I was getting involved in the Jews of Color Caucus. You know, hearing his voice and his principled opposition to Zionism on the basis that it discriminates against and destroys his people, and also discriminates against and destroys Palestinians was really a groundbreaking thing for me to see it, it. opened my eyes up to a whole other element of the conflict, which is really that anti-Arab racism has been internalized and inflicted um, within the Jewish community in a really you know, terrible and violent way. So i had already kind of had a revenge in the back of my mind and his tour and specifically that he does of Musrara neighborhood in Jerusalem and the history of the Israeli Black Panthers. I was already sort of thinking about these things. And so I, I proposed shooting a video of that and getting to kind of share his story with folks who may not even know what a Mizrahi Jew was, which unfortunately is the case for a lot of Americans and a lot of American Jews. I was like 100% you know, getting support and guidance from the Mizrahi folks and the JOCSM caucus. We also had an amazing Palestinian interpreter and producer, Darin Jube, who helped out a lot. And then the post-production process, we had a really good friend of mine who's a Mizrahi and Palestinian Jew who was giving a lot of post-production support and helping to translate and through this really, I think, dynamic, diverse team of people, we were able to make something that, you know, I'm really proud of and proud to have been a part of, which is telling Ruben's story. And Ruben is such a singular voice in that he really, he rejects the divide and conquer rule that's pushed onto Mizrahi people, pushed on to Palestinians, pushed on to all the folks living on that land. And he's uh, really committed to a joint struggle for justice, which I think, especially in the United States, we do not hear about that happening. So I thought telling that story and sharing Ruben's voice... Was really important.
0: So it seems like you always have uh, a ton going on. What do you have on your plate right now? What kind of projects are you working on?
2: Um, I have a project about African asylum seekers in Israel. This is um, Sudanese and Eritrean folks who globally have some of the most the highest rates of being recognized as asylum seekers within Israel face a really strong uphill battle against state-sponsored anti-black racism. So I'm focusing a lot on that. And also with the Unruly blog, we're trying to kick off sort of our new fiscal year in July, and we're going to kick off two posts every week and a lot more content. Aurora Levin Morales, who's a really brilliant artist, activist, and podcaster, is going to be doing some podcast work with us. We're going to have a sort of radio Unruly channel that we're really excited about. And it's just trying to continue the work of the caucus, which grew from 16 people to 100 people who came at our um, Jews of Color Day at the national membership meeting for JVP. And just continuing that work of building with each other, building with Palestinians, and building, you know, more broadly with the racial justice struggle that we have globally right now.
1: Well, Rebecca, it was really great uh, to talk with you. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. I'm glad we were finally able to, to schedule it.
2: Thanks for having me. Um, I always listen to you guys and I'm really, well, I probably won't want to listen to my own voice too much, but I'm really (laughs) excited to be on this. Thanks so much for, you know, providing a place to talk about these issues. It's really important. So I appreciate it.
0: So that was our interview with Rebecca
1: Pierce. Uh, before we get to our usual house cleaning segment at the end of the show, I just want to mention that um, we, were, we were referring to the situation in Gaza earlier. Uh, we didn't get to it in the interview. Uh, Rebecca put together this excellent short film in 2015 following the 2014 assault on Gaza, and she interviewed some of the survivors from the assault, uh, specifically a group of boys who were attacked with Israeli missiles on the beach. It got a lot of uh, press at the time. And uh, it's a, a very, very intense, difficult watch, but we'd highly recommend it. And we'll have links in the show notes to that as well as uh, her other work.
0: And beyond watching Rebecca's films, you should also check out the JOCSM website, JOCSM.org, which contains the Unruly blog that uh, was mentioned on the podcast. And beyond that, David, I think it's time to move into house cleaning territory. Oh yeah, what did you want to uh, bring up? I think this is a moment where we can ask people to send questions for our mailbag episode.
1: Oh, yeah. Anything you'd like to hear us answer on our upcoming Letters from Listeners episode, the Trafe mailbag. We haven't branded it completely yet, uh, but we're hoping to do this periodically, especially because we're gone for a while and we're not going to get to cover everything. Uh, If anyone wants us to weigh in on anything or share our thoughts and feelings, this is the time to check in. podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you don't have questions, but you have things that you'd like to share with Trave Podcast listeners, you can always record a voice memo on your smartphone or your computer. Just tell us your name and where you're calling from at the top and make sure it's about one to two minutes. You can send it to travepodcast at gmail.com and we'll play it on our next episode.
0: That is certainly true. And if you can, give us a positive review on iTunes, five stars, write a lovely little note.
1: That seems to be about it. Thanks for hanging in there while we were gone.
0: Trave Podcast is Sambik and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga Gahaga territory. Thanks to Claire Hertig, to Kira Page, to Cadence O'Neill,
1: to C. Lavery, to Ariana Katz, to Sex Syndrome, and to Socalled for the music you heard in this episode.
0: You can follow us on all the social medias at Trave T-R-E-Y-F. I believe that includes Twitter, Facebook, and that's basically about it. Just the two. <laughs> And please send comments, suggestions, hate mail, positive notes of affirmation to podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you in two weeks.
2: Actually,
1: what?
0: that's my alarm is it time to wake up no this has all been a dream it was was, I think it's time to wake up a few days ago and I never turned it off (laughs) what like like in a sense that sometimes when I do the later alarm you've been snoozing for three days on your alarm I have (laughs)